I know. So you speaking to anybody? You have a, a word for us, a word of encouragement or testimony? How's God been working? Right in the front row. Miriam. Well, I don't like to talk to so many people, but I'll Okay, do we'll it. talk to me then. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, you want to tell it? No. No, you no. tell it. Okay. Um, my son um, was mugged last Sunday, and Ryan. Ryan was? Yeah. He, w he wanted to go for a bike ride um, when we got home over to another friend's house, and uh, I kept telling him, please don't, you know, just stay home, we'll do something until daddy gets home, because he was over there swimming. And um, um, forgot what happened. No. Um, he um, kept insisting on going. And I kept telling him, please don't go, please don't go. Um, just stay with me. We'll figure out something to do. And um, so I finally said, you know, I'm being ridiculous, just being typical mom me. Just go ahead and go. Fine. No problem. Go. And um, I let him go. And when he was leaving, um, he got his bike and he was going out the door. And when he was leaving, um, I looked at him and I said, Ryan, I love you. And God bless you. And he looks at me like, yeah, mom, okay. You know, love you too. Bye. So he left. And um, he wasn't gone long. I was watering, and I just looked up at the sky, and I said, Lord, I don't know what's the matter with me, but he's in your hands. He's your child. You take care of him. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't go around doing this all the time. In fact, I don't think I've ever done it before. Um, no, I have many times, but not in this way, like, you know, Lord, you take care of him, type pleading. And so I went back home. I mean, I went back inside, and I was just doing whatever, and... My husband got home with my younger child, and then he disappeared. And I, I'm telling, where's Daddy? You know, and I don't know. So I thought that he was next door talking to a neighbor or something. So I didn't think much about it until a phone rang, and it was um, the police and 911 telling me that um, to come and get my son. And I'm going, what? You know, oh, he's okay. He has a big bump on his head, but um, you need to come get him. He's at such and such a location. Anyway, so I went over there, and I was looking um, all over the place. I couldn't find the place, you know, and I, 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 I left my little son home alone. I shouldn't have. He's eight years old, but I just, I know it wasn't far, and I just said, you know, and I thought Daddy was around. I said, stay here. Don't move. I'll be back, you know, and, and I said, freeze. Don't do anything. Don't go out. Don't answer the phone. Nothing, you know, and he's looking at me like, but anyway, so then I left, you know, in the car. I didn't even take my driver's license. Oh, boy. But, um... And so I got to the location, and um, they told me the story, and he had a huge bump on his head. It turned out that he was coming home, and this 18-year-old, he just turned 18 two months ago, followed him in, in another bike, because he was, you know, bike riding, and just caught up with him and just socked him in the back of the head to try and knock him off the bike. Now, mind you, this is while you're still, you know, bike riding at the, you know, he was going pretty fast because he knew he was being followed. So this guy comes and he knocks him and on the ground, and um, Ryan luckily didn't fall off the bike because he would have been really scraped. And he um, just dumped the bike. He got off the bike and he said, you take it, you take it. 
And um, I won't say the obscene words that the guy said, but anyways, the guy dumps his own bike, he was, he was probably stolen, and grabs Ryan's bike and takes off with it. In the meantime, Ryan's like going like this to the cars that are going by, you know, help, help, help. And nobody's stopping. And this, lo and behold, this guy on a motorcycle comes and he looks at Ryan that he's pleading for help. And he says, hop on. You know, which I told him, you don't hop on it. And, you know, like I just immediately jumping from the thought, pan into the fire here. I know. I said, you know, this could have been a setup to get you kidnapped. You know, you could have been in, a, in who knows what country by now. But anyways, the Lord was watching because um, he hopped on and he was like hanging on for dear life. And they went looking for the guy and they spotted him. And they like, they, they chased him into McMaster's Park and they chased him around and Ryan's on the motorcycle hanging on going around in circles and then they rammed the um, Ryan's bike and the guy destroyed the bike totally but they got the guy yeah no and this guy just the guy got away no no he didn't oh I'm sorry it's Tell my story okay. Sam I'm hanging on every word I want to know what happens here well let me tell you okay so um, so they rammed the bike and the guy gets off and he kicks the guy and he says, if you move, I'm going to, you know, whatever. So the guy obviously Bless didn't you. move. Yeah, it was really great. And so I, so then, oh, and then Ryan ran to the uh, neighbor house and he called 911 and the police was there like, in, like, I mean, they must have been around the corner already. God sent them there, I know. You know, 30 seconds, they, even before Ryan walked out of the house, after he made the phone call, the police were already there which I thought was odd because they always take so long. But then what happened? <laughs> um, Lighten up on the editorial comment. Okay, sorry. <laughs> and um, so, but what I thought was interesting was when I got there, um, um, you know, my main concern was Ryan. I mean, this is my boy. He had, they said, you know, I should take him to the hospital. He's got this big bump on his head, and he did. You know, but, and I, and I looked at the police car. You know, how often do you get to look at someone who's, you know, they're usually gone, in other words, you know, and I, and I looked at this guy and I, and I wanted to give him the dirtiest look that I could possibly give him. I mean, this is my boy he hurt, you know, and I just, I made my way around the car, you know, and, and I'm going, I can't muster this dirty look for the life of me. And my heart is going out to this guy and I'm going, he needs Jesus. Amen. You know, and I'm going, but he hurt him, and I go, no, you know, and it was like this war in me, but the war, you know, God won, because, you know, my heart went out to him, and, and I just looked at him, you know, and I, I felt sorry for him, you know, and I realized that he, and I even thought of giving him a track, and I took it out of the car, and I said, you know, and Ryan looked at me and said, <laughs> you know, but um, praise the Lord, he, you know, if you can see how the circumstances went, how God, you know, takes care of you, even if you you know, don't do the right thing. He just, he's there to meet your needs. He's a very personal God. And another thing that happened was, um, Stephen Leal, I don't know where he is. I was having a phone conversation with my husband. I just, this will be really short. Yes, I'll cut it short. And um, I was getting very depressed because it was like the cherry on the Sunday, you know, one thing after another that week, you know, and, and yucky conversation on the phone. And I was very sad. So I sat on, on my desk and I started to cry. And then all of a sudden, Stephen... Uh, Calls. Oh, no, I, I told God at that point, I said, Lord, you know, you take care of it because it's too big for me. I can't handle it. And that was it. And the, then um, the phone rings, and it was Stephen Leal, and he says, um, um, I was just sitting at my work, and one of the post-its that he has, apparently has post-its, people that he prays for during the day, 
fell on the floor. And I went to pick it up, and I looked at it, and it had your name on it. And God told me to call you and tell you not to be discouraged, but to be encouraged. I mean, the timing was, you know, it was like I, I said that to God. One tear fell, and God, you know, and the phone rang. I should say God called. And, um, <laughs> and I thought, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, I said, oh, Stephen, you don't know what this means to me. And I thank you for being obedient to God's, you know, to God's prompting. And, um, and then that was it, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, it was like every, it just, I was so happy after that because I felt like God, you know, was very, very super personal with me. And it's, it's, I've been asking him about that in the morning. I'm saying, God, I really want to get to know you. Can you just show me more of yourself? I mean, like in one-on-one, you know, not like, you know, like everybody, but I said special, you know, because I have the special thing that I need. So, um, so he met my needs. And, you know, for those of you who don't think that, you know, God will, you know, is a personal, very personal God, you know, you're wrong. And you need to just keep asking him you know, show me more of you, and he will. I mean, I guarantee it. And, and he will meet your every need, and he'll take care of you. So I just, you know, want to encourage you guys to just sit before him and, and just, you know, tell him, you know, show me more of you. You know, how can we just get more personally, you know, involved with each other? Because it'll work. So, amen. Ryan's okay? Is he here today? He's in junior high. He's in junior high? Okay. Diane? Diane Leal. You don't have to speak into Zach's shirt. This is great. Uh, okay. Um, I want to thank a lot of people here this morning that prayed for my mom, and I want to give thanks and glory to God for his grace and his mercy. Um, because of him, my mom's sitting here this morning, a little history about three years ago. We were on vacation going to Wyoming, or thinking we were going to Wyoming, and in Utah, my mom had a heart attack. Um, we knew no one there. We wound up in University of U uh, Utah Medical Center for about three weeks because after the heart attack, the very next day, my mom went into a um, cerebral bleed or a, a stroke, and we watched her decline to um, literally no response. And they told us that she was on her way to death. And the only thing that would um, keep her from that was a miracle. So we knew where we were headed, and we knew who, we to, who to talk to about this miracle. So while we were there, it was, and it was a very, very difficult, stressful, tough situation. I mean, it's something that happens to people that you read about. It doesn't happen to you or your friends. And, and it was happening to us. And we were just like, we had no brains. We were there for three weeks. We didn't know anyone. Uh, we were in and out of hotel rooms, eating in restaurants. It was horrible. Um, we were encouraged by people through our mini-church. We are so, so thankful. Those of you who are not in mini-church, you just don't know what it is to have a family that's behind you. They called us in Utah every day. They sent us tapes. Um, we knew that we were being supported. And um, after three weeks, we said, well, if mom is going to um, go home, she's going to go home, home to go home. So we flew her back to um, Northern California and that was, she still stayed in the coma five more weeks. So she was in a deep coma with no response for eight weeks. Now, people just don't recover from that. They told us when we flew her home that in 24 hours she would be dead because they had to take the thing out of her head that was draining the blood. Anyway, she's not dead. She is talking. She is beginning to walk. Um, she has speech. She has memory. And she's here with us this morning. And we're just totally thankful for those of you who prayed and for God. Thank you.
Beautiful. Welcome. We, many of us have prayed for you, and it's a delight to have you. What's your name? Megan. Megan? Come on, Megan. Tell us what you want to share. Okay. Um, I got two things. Okay. So. Okay, one of them is that I would like for everybody to pray for my mother. Now, nobody knows my mother except for my father, and she's back home, but... I would like everybody just to pray for her on her, you know, everything, because she's having a lot of problems, and she doesn't know God. You know, she's not a very religious person, but, and by me just getting into it, you know, I can't really go and say a whole lot too, and she just look at me like, yeah, right, you know, but <laughs> I would like to, uh... What's your mom's name? Pamela. Pamela, where she live? In Detroit. Detroit, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, pray for strength, to give me strength, to be able to encourage her to at least, you know, have an open mind about it. Because I think that if she opens her life to God, that she, he'll take off her problems and he'll let her forget the past. And she'll be happy because she's never been happy. And I want her to die happily, you know. So I hope that she can change. You know. And also, I would like to say that a few years ago, I met my daddy, and I didn't know him. You know, I didn't want to know him, but we had bumpy times, and we made it through that, and I thank God for that. He stuck with it. He didn't get discouraged, even when I was being a pain. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I just want to tell him thank you, and I love you, and your grandson loves you very much. And I just want to thank God for bringing my family together. Andy. You have to give God the glory for that. Amen. Because there's nothing I did, and that's for sure. And it's it's funny because today I wanted to be able to share with you folks about my daughter and myself, our relationship over the over the years. And uh, it was just too hard. And the Holy Spirit moved in and he said, Well, I've got a mouth somewhere, here's another one. <laughs> He's never at a loss. Beautiful. But I, I also thank all of you. Some of you have been praying for, uh, for us for eight years. And your prayers have been answered. They surely have. And I have a beautiful grandson in the nursery. And he's just a dynamite little kid. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Right. I'd like to ask some of you women... Uh, who are spiritual women, older women in the Lord, if you would gather around Megan right now, lay hands on her, pray for her strength as she's asked, and pray for her mom. Would you do that? Let's do, can we do that right now? Some of you women who... Bernadette, come on over here. Let's all just bow our head and agree with them in prayer right now for Megan's own life and for her mom, Pamela, her mom would come to know Jesus as Megan has.
Amen? Amen. All right. I want to continue in our conversation about discipleship from the previous two weeks. We've been asking this question, is anybody a disciple? We're taking our, as our reference, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, and the thrust of the Great Commission is in fact to what? To go and make disciples, right? But if we are to go and make disciples, then it's essential that we first be disciples. Can't make one unless you are one. You can talk a good story, you can fake it out, but you can't really make disciples unless you are one. You don't understand the cost, you don't understand the life, you don't understand the concept of relationship with Jesus, any of those things, and uh, if you are not immersed in the middle of it so that you can lead others in that same way. So we've been looking, we've been asking ourselves, we've been looking at our own lives as professing Christians, saying, am I a true disciple? We said uh, two weeks ago when we started this series that a true disciple is one who is called, finish it, by Jesus. We said that there's a difference in him choosing and us choosing. He's chosen. He says, don't you know that I chose you? You didn't choose me? whole different, brings a whole different perspective to our life, a, a whole different understanding uh, and impetus to our very attitude about him and about the things he's called us to, to be chosen by him, the creator of the universe. We said that the call by him was also a call to him. This is really important. We are called to him. To be in relationship to him. If someone very, very important, very significant, of great renown and influence and power and so forth were to come to you and he were to say, I'm calling you into relationship with me, would you not be... Flattered, blessed, excited, think, wow, me, why me? Me? And it's not that you have any particular qualifications or abilities, it's just that he's chosen to call you into relationship with him. How would that affect your life? Whoa. Would you be excited? Sure. I think I asked last week for those of you who are part of Mini Church to, in the, in the midst of your conversations at Mini Church and your discussion in terms of application of what we talked about, to, to give some evidence, give some testimony, give some definition uh, to the fact that you have, in fact, a relationship with Jesus. 
Now, we know that we have this relationship by faith. True? But how do you know that you have a relationship? You say, well, I believe I do. Well, how can we know? How can we be certain? Can anybody tell me? Anybody? But what happens in our life? What's, what should be happening in my life? Changes? What kind of changes? Yeah, good changes, positive changes. Uh, things that my life should be evidencing what? More and more growth, fruit, love, obedience, Christ-likeness, right? Let me give you an analogy. You're in a marriage. And you and your partner are both committed to this relationship, committed to this marriage. You are both investing in it actively. You're not necessarily looking and seeing and, and observing what's this other person doing or not doing. You're committed to inputting with all your energy into this marriage. The other partner is also. What's going to be the effect of that on you? On you? Aren't you going to grow? Aren't you changing? You're changing because what? There's this, this relationship in which you are invested and the effect of relationship, one person on another, results in growth. Now certainly, how long have you guys been married? 14. 14, 17. <laughs> 14. Let me try somebody else. <laughs> We'll clarify to you, actually. Yeah, okay. 14. 14, right. We've okay. known each other 17. You've known each other 17. Sorry. Okay, that's right. That's good. Good cleanup, Miriam. All right, you've been married 14 years. You've both been investing in this marriage, investing in the relationship, investing in one another, and most especially the past few years, right? Now, are you the same people today that you were when you got married? Are you different people? Have you grown? Are you stronger, more loving, more understanding, more gracious, more compassionate, more sensitive? More committed. More committed? Yeah, see, so there's been an effect in your life. Now, without the relationship, you just live together. Now, certainly people are married, and they live together, some for... 30, 40, 50 years, right? But we don't see the transformation going on in our lives because why? They're not invested in the relationship. Proverbs says iron sharpens iron. Now, if we understand the growth that emanates from just a, a, a temporal relationship when we're given to it, when we're invested in it, if we, if we understand these things, then how much more does that principle really apply in a relationship with the living God? When you are invested in that relationship by faith, when you are giving all that you can give your entire being into that relationship. You are loving with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. You are serving. You are committed now, obviously, the scriptures say that God is committed. He loves and so forth. So there's no worry about what his end. It's just us. Now, do you think that there will be an effect in our life as a result of the relationship with him if we're fully 
given to that relationship? What's the, what's the effect, do you think? Growth. Spiritual fruit. Loving, gracious, merciful, kind, compassionate, and on and on. Don't we become more like Jesus? Have you ever seen two people who are just really committed? Their marriage is just flourishing. They've, they've been married for years and years and years, and you stand back and you look at them and you say, you guys even look alike. <laughs> you guys sound alike. You guys are so sickeningly alike. I mean, we say things like that, don't we? When people are really invested, they, they, are, they have so affected each other, you don't even have to ask questions, do you? You know where the other person's at. You know what they're thinking. You can anticipate. And the same thing is true of our relationship with the Lord. When we are so invested in that relationship, we ought to be looking more and more. We ought to resemble more and more who? The one we're in relationship with Jesus. Isn't that true? So how do you know? How do you know that you have a living, vital, dynamic relationship with Jesus? Because you're becoming more like him. And it's not that, that you are making yourself more like Jesus. I'm going to be more like Jesus today. <laughs> no, it's just, that, it's just the, work, the work that he's doing in you and, and the effect that he has on you because you're so open to him. It's the effect of relationship. There's a transformation that happens. So we've been called by him, and we said that the call by him was also a call to him to be in relationship with him. Now that leads us to the next phase of our understanding of what a true disciple is. A true disciple is also called to obey. So we're asking these two questions. Is anybody a disciple? And secondly, is anybody obeying? Is anybody obeying? So we're called to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you finish it. You'll obey me. The two go to hand in hand. They go together. Why? Because obedience is a function of love. Love is designation of what? Relationship, isn't it? If you love me, if we're really in relationship, you'll obey me. We say that to our kids. If you really love mom and dad, if, you really, if, you're, if you're really with us, you'll obey us. You'll obey us. And it's when we cease to love that we could obey. Isn't that true? I want to read to you a, a, an interview, just a, a brief interview, with a man by the name of Bill Bright. Anybody know Bill Bright? Know of him? Many of you do. He started a ministry uh, with, uh, with some others uh, called Campus Crusade for Christ. And it's a ministry worldwide now to college and university campuses to reach people for Jesus and uh, to disciple them in the faith. And it's a powerful ministry. He's been in, the, in ministry for over 40 years, nearly half a century. They, people who interviewed him asked him, you know, if, if you were to stand back, and, and certainly you've, you've done these times, you've had these seasons of evaluation, and you look at the, at the years of labor and the effect of the labors and your life and so forth and the ministry... What would you do differently? What would you do differently? 
Let me read you his response. He said, recently I was asked, in the light of the lessons you have learned in 43 years of ministry, what would you do differently? After a few moments of prayerful consideration, I responded, I would concentrate more on building disciples. I would concentrate more on building disciples. Let me say it again. I would concentrate more on building disciples. Men and women whom God has already chosen and ordained to be his spokesman to the world. He goes on. As I thought about it later, I was reminded that this is exactly what Jesus emphasized when he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Make disciples. I have a growing conviction, he says, that one of the great tragedies of our time is that the average professing Christian is not a true disciple. That's a scary thought. But that's coming from a man who has invested 43 years plus in ministry and working with people and seeing the church from the perspective that he has. And his conviction is that the great amount of professing Christians are not true disciples of Jesus. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. That means the vast majority of people sitting in churches today, this morning, professing Christians are not true disciples of Jesus. This is his estimation. He says, I believe that God is speaking to the American church and to much of the Christian world as he did to the church at Laodicea. Now, what did he say? What did Jesus say to the church at Laodicea? Does anybody remember? Revelation chapter 3, verse 16? That's right. Because you are neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. So all he's suggesting is that the vast majority of the church is just kind of lukewarm. They're just sitting there. That we have forsaken the command to make disciples. He says, on any given Sunday, more than 100 million Americans will be in church. Isn't that marvelous? 100 million Americans will be in church. A hundred million people. A hundred million. Is that not a tremendous number of people? The tragedy is, from his point of view, the vast majority of them are not true disciples. What a waste. He says, we're supposed to be the salt and light in our communities and our country, yet the headlines daily point to the avalanche of evil destroying us. I believe that this is a result of our failure as believers. Throughout the centuries, God has made available to his children supernatural resources to empower his church to take his love, forgiveness, and healing to the entire world. He says, if I had my ministry to do over, I would place a greater emphasis on recruiting disciples who are committed to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I would place a stronger emphasis on calling people to come and help change the world. For those who respond to the call, I would seek to inspire, motivate, 
train and encourage them to understand the greatness of our God and the greatness of his plan. I'd lift their sights up. Call them to understand what it is that we are called to. Of all the challenges of men, he says, there is nothing that compares with the privilege of helping to fulfill the Great Commission. There is no greater calling in life than to fulfill the Great Commission. I would also teach these disciples the power of the Word of God, the power of a holy life, of a life of prayer and witnessing. There is no question in my mind that the prayers and witnessing of godly, spirit-filled men and women can reverse the tide of evil that is all around us. If we, by the way we live, by what we say and do, proclaim the glory of the resurrection, demonstrating the supernatural resources available to men and women of God, there is no problem that cannot be solved. No problem that cannot be solved. Beloved, God is God. His arm is not too short. There is nothing too hard for him, but he is looking for true disciples, men and women who are willing to put their lives on the line and, if need be, die for him. True discipleship. True discipleship. Something for most professing Christians today that is yet still to be understood and learned. So we're talking about this, being a true disciple. We want to focus on the obedience aspect today. Jesus calls his disciples to unconditional and lifelong obedience. Unconditional, lifelong obedience. You would think, well, I understand that. That's not something new to me. Yes, but you have to understand it against the backdrop of the first century and the prevailing environment of discipleship in which Jesus lived. You had the Greek philosophers and their schools of discipleship. You had the rabbinic schools of discipleship. And the students in those schools would be devoted, dedicated to their teachers, their rabbis, their masters, and to the teaching only until they graduated. And when they graduated, they went their own way. They became rabbis. They became teachers. They started their own schools of thought. They were no longer in submission and obedient to their teacher, their master. But with Jesus, just the opposite. We never graduate. Novel thought. We never graduate. He's our teacher forever. Therefore, he calls us to lifelong and unconditional obedience. He says a couple of interesting things in the Gospels. He says in Matthew chapter 7... Verse 21. How many are familiar with that passage? That is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. You know that? I dislike very much reading that verse. I read that verse and it gives me pause every time I read it. 
It's in that passage of Jesus. Now, he's just completed the Sermon on the Mount. He's just given the qualities, the conditions of discipleship and, and, and what it means to be a participant in the kingdom of God. And then he says this. He winds it all up with this verse. Verse 21 of chapter 7 of Matthew. Many will come to me in that day. What day? The day of his... Looking for what? Attaboys. And his response, he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that what he says? What does he say? He says, never did I know you. Away from me, you evildoers. Not doers of good, evildoers. Now think about this for a minute. You spend your whole life professing to be a Christian, doing all these works, prophesying, healing the sick, casting out demons. I mean, these are obvious works of power, right? And you're doing them in whose name? Jesus' name. You're invested your whole life. And it comes down to that one moment. His appearing. And he says, sorry. It's all for naught. We never even had a relationship. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Did that devastate you? Did that devastate you? That's the scariest verse in the Bible for me. I've chosen to invest my life in the kingdom. I've chosen to do all that I know how to do to preach the gospel, to make disciples. The very thought that I could be deceiving myself, looking for his second coming, when he comes, have him say to me, I never knew you. Can you dig it? Does that, does that get you? So I, you know, I, I take a step back every now and again. I go, let me see sure I got all this right now. Put things in perspective. The issue is, do I really love him Am I really in a relationship with him? Is my life changing? It's not so much what I'm doing. We know all sorts of people, and the Christian world historically has been full of all sorts of people doing stuff. But their lives are a mess. People say all day long, I love Jesus. But you look at their life, you look at their relationships, and you see what? Nothing but brokenness and ugliness and grief. Yet they're there. They're in church every Sunday. 
They're doing the stuff. There's a real difference. He says in another place in Luke's gospel. He says, you call me Lord, Lord. Right? But you don't do what I say. Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. If I was really Lord, really Lord to you, would it be an issue? Doing what I say? No, we'd do it. He says, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? See, if we really do have a relationship, you really do love me, you'll do it. I tell my son that. I say, Michael, do you love mom and dad? Yes, I love mom and dad. I love you. I love you so much. You say, wonderful. If you love us so much, why don't you do what we say? Because you're right, Dad. You're right. Calls for some repentance. Calls for some changing. Calls for some getting back in line. I told him, I said, I want you to honor me. I want you to honor me. He said, Dad, how can I honor you? I said, by obeying me. Real simple. Isn't that what the scriptures teach? Children, honor your parents. Right? That way you'll have a long life and it'll go well with you. I said, do you want to live a long life? Yes, Dad. Do you want it to go well with you? Yes, Dad. <laughs> honor me. Obey me. You see, it's not, we're not just talking about tasks. We're talking about a dynamic of relationship that is not grievous. It's not difficult. It, in fact, is a joy to do and to honor those whom we love, isn't it? Because when you really love somebody, don't you go the nth mile for them? You see, I mean, nothing is too hard. Nothing is too great. I would submit to you that to obey God's will is to find the fulfillment of our lives. People running around all over the map looking to get their lives fulfilled trying to find meaning and purpose when, in fact, it comes right back to obeying God, who is the master designer, the creator, the manufacturer of it all. He made it all. He says, I know how it works. If you follow the directions, fine. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I urge you all today, go home and read Deuteronomy chapter 28. It is there where God speaks very clearly, and he says, if you obey me, your life will be blessed. If you disobey me, your life will be cursed. It can't get any simpler than that. So I want to live a blessed, fulfilled life. God says, well, do what I say. Live it according to the manufacturer's handbook. Follow the directions. You open the box, read the directions before you go to assemble that thing called life. Make sense? To be a disciple of Jesus means basically to follow him. To go the way he goes. What way does Jesus go? The way of the cross. Thank you. And to accept his plans for our lives. Is it easy to accept his plans for our lives? 
No. We want him to accept our plans for our lives. Listen to yourself next time you pray. Start off wonderfully. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, I love you. And on and on with all the praise and wonderful worship and thoughtful things that you say to him. And then you get to the requests, which is okay. You know, God says, ask, you know, ask me. But then we just, you know, we slip over. We cross over this line. It's not only that we're asking requests, but we, we slip into this subtle thing of telling him how to do it. Do you find, Jill, do you ever do that? Do you really? You know, we just look through a keyhole. He sees the beginning from the end. He has the whole big picture. We just see a little bit. Most of us operate from what I call keyhole theology. We make these grand determinations. We set the plans. We, set, we tell God how it ought to operate from the little bit of information we get. Crazy, aren't we? Do you have trouble with this prayer? Anybody have trouble with this prayer? You just think. Very simple. God, your will be done. And then you just back away and leave it alone. You don't add anything. You don't amend it. You don't say, uh, but... Uh. You know what I'm talking about? God, your will be done. I accept your plans. You know best. I want the very best, and you know the very best, and that's what your plan is. Your will be done. I'm not going to tell you anything about how to do it. In fact, God comes to mind that, that I don't really even know what I need. I'm not even sure how to ask and what to ask. Think about that one. So you give God full license for your life. That scare anybody? <laughs> I mean, that, that's when your Christianity starts to get exciting. When you abandon yourself to God, and you begin to say, okay, Lord, your will be done. Woo! And you go, okay, here we go. Because he's what? He's just looking for somebody. The scriptures say the eyes of the Lord move to and fro about the earth looking for someone to strongly support whose heart is completely his. How do we know a heart that's completely his? Lord, your will be done. And he look at the heart. Those words, if they're real, if they reflect a genuine heart attitude, man, what can God do? You see, a true disciple of Jesus means is a person who follows him. A person who goes the way he goes. A person who accepts his plans for our lives. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says it. He says, if anyone would come after me, if you're going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Every day. Every day. Oh, pick up the cross. Deny myself. That's right. It's a call to say no to the old way of life and yes to Jesus. That's what repentance is about. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. Our inward belief must be accompanied by an outward obedience. You say you believe, let's see it in your life. 
Let's see in your life. Let's see the change occur. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Don't tell me you're a disciple of Jesus if there's no changes in your life. There are people all over the country saying, Oh, I'm, on, I'm born again. Stop it. If there's no outward obedience. Stop telling people you're a Christian. We've already got enough bad press as it is. We don't need a shabby, another shabby testimony to families and neighbors and friends and workmates. We need true disciples of Jesus. And for heaven's sakes, don't tell them you go to Hope Chapel. (laughs) I'm out and about during the week. I go to Costco. People stop me. Aren't you Pastor Zach? Aren't you Reverend Zach? (laughs) Say, yes, I am. So I've been to your church. I saw you on TV. I know somebody who goes to your church. I said, oh boy, here it comes. (laughs) Ask yourself this question. Is my obedience radical? Radical? What do you mean radical? Don't push me too far here. Radical. Yes, radical. What do you mean radical? Well, let me give you a couple of illustrations about what I mean in terms of radical discipleship, radical obedience. I want to compare our our understanding of discipleship with two other groups, communists and political terrorists. Do you think communists and political terrorists are radical? Oh, yeah. They have bankrupt theories and philosophies, empty, corrupt, leads nowhere but to destruction. And yet, would you suggest that those people who are committed to those philosophies, to those theories, would you, would you suggest that those people are unalterably committed? Oh, Absolutely. There's a great book that would be helpful for some of you to read. It's called Dedication and Leadership. It's written by a man, his name is Douglas Hyde. It's in our bookstore. Douglas Hyde was a communist trainer or discipler for nearly a quarter of a century. He converted to Christianity and then wrote this book. And in the book, he describes all of the, all of the, the theories and methodologies and principles that the communists would use to indoctrinate and train other people into communism and to make them unalterably committed to that bankrupt theory. And you and I know communism is an absolute waste. Any rational person would examine it, and yet, at the same time, these people are committed unalterably to that theory. Let me read to you a comment of one such communist to a Christian. Listen to this. He says, 
The gospel is a much more powerful weapon for the renewal of society than is our Marxist philosophy. What an interesting insight. Here's a communist who sees that the gospel is really much more powerful than is Marxism. And yet he goes on, he says, but it is we who will finally beat you. How could he say that? Well, he goes on to say, we communists actually do what we say. We don't just play with words. We're realists. We see our object. We understand the means. We believe in our message. We're ready to sacrifice everything, even our life, if necessary. But you Christians, you're not even willing to get your hands dirty. Oh, what an indictment! He understands and he sees what so many people see. The Muslim fundamentalist, unalterably committed to spreading the doctrine of Islam, right? Even to the point of what? Death. Unfortunately, it's our death. <laughs> the death of the infidel. Listen to this. this. This really got me. I read an article a long time ago about women terrorists. Women terrorists. The article goes on to say that women terrorists are very, very unique. They are intensely loyal. They are ruthlessly totally ruthless in their life, in their carrying out of their mission, they, will go, they are willing to go to any lengths for their cause. Whoa. Just imagine if we could mobilize the women in the church. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what it's come to, mobilizing the women. Somebody say, uh huh. <laughs> Amen. What about Christians? What about Christian men? Who? <laughs> Can we expect anything less than this kind of total commitment? from those who profess to have the greatest, most powerful message, the very power of God available to them? Can we expect anything less? Radical discipleship, radical obedience. To say no, Lord, is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? And yet many within the church today want the comfortable compromise of conditional discipleship. Jesus calls us to what? Unconditional discipleship and obedience. The bottom line is our wish to have the final word. We want to decide when to say yes, when to say no. Anybody here ever been in the military? Frank, you in the military? What branch of the service were you in? Navy. Who? We had a Navy SEAL Friday night. Yeah. Were you officer, enlisted man? What were you? Enlisted. Enlisted man. Okay. So here you are. You're on board ship? No. Okay. CBs in San Diego. CBs in San Diego. Do you have a commanding officer? Yes. Okay. Your commanding officer came to you 
He said, Frank, I give you this order. And he orders you to do something. What is your response? Yes, sir. <laughs> Woo! Do you know that in every single service from Friday night through last night through all the two services this morning and this one out, that response has been identical? Yes, sir. Now, question. If your commanding officer had given you that command and you had responded by saying, oh, I just don't feel like it. <laughs> Would there have been some consequence, some problem? Definitely so. Would he have have let you said, no? No? He said, oh, okay, I'll find somebody else. (laughs) If you said, I'm not ready. (laughs) And yet the Lord calls, and he gives us a command and we say, I'm not ready. I don't feel like it. Or worse yet, I'll pray about it. <laughs> What's your name? Michael. Michael. Are we in the same camp? Yes. You understand what we're saying? See, we, we, because there's no real belief, because don't, we don't really believe, and because there's no apparent consequence to our disobedience, we just blithely go along thinking we're in control. I can say yes, I can say no whenever I feel like it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church so much that you'd lay your life down for her. (laughs) Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? We're not even talking about those those promptings that God moves in us and those inspirational love things that he does in us and, you know, our hearts go vroom and he's calling us to minister like he called you to minister to that man in the back of that police car. We're not even talking about that stuff. We're talking about just what we read in the book. And yet we blithely go on and say, Ah, not today. To the Lord of the universe? (sighs) Have mercy on us, O God. We are an unbelieving and sinful generation. You see, the bottom line is this. If Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. It's not selective. It's not possibly a partial disciple of Jesus. Do you think that the life of obedience is difficult? Sure, absolutely. Takes everything, doesn't it? 
Do you think that the life of obedience is painful? Absolutely. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross. It's not a romp in the park. It's like we're violin strings and we're strung across the violin and we're tightened and tightened and tightened and tightened. We go, ah, I'm going to break any minute. You ever said this? I can't go another day. I can't handle any more. Not one more step. When nothing happens, you've got to go another day. You've got to take the next step. He says he'll never give us more than we can bear. We're always underestimating what God can do in us. We're whiners and complainers. Oh, please, I don't want to suffer. Oh. We are to encourage and exhort one another every day. We need each other. As the writer in the Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 13, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Do you ever notice what happens when you're, when, you're, when you're out of Christian fellowship, when you're out of Christian relationships, when you're not accountable? Boy, can you just get real hard and, 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 and cold and mean? And We need each other. So in this life of obedience that he calls us to, as painful, as demanding, as costly as it is, it's the most liberating life anyone could ever live. And we're not called to live it alone because he's given us each other to encourage and exhort, to be, to be with. How would you like this? How would you like if we could sign people up and I could come and live with you 24 hours a day for one month? No. I'll pay for my own food. No, I don't do dishes. <laughs> Nobody's, nobody wants me to come live with them. I would only there to be there to encourage, to exhort, stimulate, stand with you. When your arms are coming down, lift them back up again. That's what we're supposed to do with each other. But obviously, I can't be with everybody, so God has given us a body with lots of us to be involved. Listen to what Paul says to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27. The Philippians were in dire straits. These people were desperate, the Philippian church. He writes to them, chapter 1, verse 27. He says, whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But you don't do this alone. He says, stand firm in one spirit. Be together. One spirit. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Whatever happens, no compromise. Support each other. Support each other. Stand firm. No compromise. Encourage each other. We're in a battle. We're in warfare. 
several years ago, man, I was challenging him to obedience in the faith. And he said to me, how can Jesus, how can he call me to radical, absolute obedience? I'm only human. Did you ever say that? I'm only human. What are we saying? I can't obey. I won't obey. I said he can call you that kind of radical, absolute obedience for three reasons. First, because he has laid his life down for us. He obeyed. He obeyed to the point of death. Have any of us obeyed to the point of death? No. No. We shed our blood in obedience? No. He said, yeah, but, but you have to understand something. When I came to Christ, the, the people led me to Christ. They didn't tell me about this. That's part of the problem. I said, you mean they didn't read the fine print to you? They didn't read you the red parts? I said, not only has Christ died for you, giving you an example for to follow, but also he has put his spirit in you. He said, well, yeah, Jesus could obey, but, but he was God. No, Jesus was a man. God's spirit indwelt him. Just like his spirit indwells us, enables us to live this life of faith, this life of obedience. The same spirit that was in Christ is in you and I. You have access to the same power of God. And I said, thirdly, he's given us one another. You see, we have no excuse. Where we always look for an excuse, we say, but I'm just human, I'm imperfect, I'm just a man, I'm just made out of sugar, I melt in the rain, I'm just a little flower. No, you don't give yourself that out. You say, no. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Either the word is true and God is true or he's a liar. I much prefer reading and believing God's word than man's testimony. I can obey him. I can obey him. The question is, will I? Do I believe? Am I a true disciple? Or am I one of the great mass of people who profess to be a disciple, and yet am I risking on that day when he comes back, hearing, never did I know you? Somebody say amen. amen. Pray with me. Lord God, you know the meditation of our hearts. You know where each of us are. We pray this morning as we think on these things together that your word and your truth would penetrate to the deepest part of our being, that we would be people utterly, absolutely committed to you, unwilling to compromise, that we truly are people of faith, people of the book. Empowered by your spirit. All the things that you say, that Lord, they, they would find realization in our lives today. That we go from this place excited and enthusiastic to pray, Lord, your will be done. 
open, inviting you to have your way in us and through us. Lord, I know for myself I long to be a true disciple of yours. I pray that be the case for all of us. There may be some that are here this morning, if you keep your heads bowed for just one more moment, there may be some this morning that are in desperately need of God in your life. You don't understand it all. You don't have all the theology down. All you know is that your life is in desperate straits. You're unfulfilled. You know you're a sinner. You're guilty. You're ashamed. you tried other things, tried other places. You've done it all. But you've come to the inescapable conclusion that you've got to have God in your life. The Bible says that the only way that God can be in your life is by believing in Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and raised after three days from the dead to bring us new life, to give us a second chance. He wants to give you that second chance. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. He's very exclusive. He can be. For he is the Lord. He died for you. He's calling you. You're not here this morning by accident or coincidence. He's calling you, as we said earlier. He's calling you into relationship with him. And he's calling you to obedience. And if you're prepared to respond, if you're prepared to say, yes, Lord, take my life. I give myself to you. You can only do it because he's already done a work in you and you have this desire and this yearning to be in relationship with him. I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment. I don't want to pray it by myself. I want to know that some people want to pray with me. You can signal me. You can say, Pastor, I want to pray that prayer with you. I want to become a Christian. I want Jesus to save me. I want God in my life. If that's true of you, while everybody's heads are bowed, you can signal me just by waving, getting my attention. I'll know that we're going to pray. Anybody at all? Just raise your hand. Wave your hand at me. Get my attention. Okay, God bless you. I see your hand down here in the front. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay, I see your hand. God bless you too. Wonderful. just responding to God's call. He's choosing you. He's choosing to call you to himself. The Bible says when you hear his voice, don't say no. Anybody else? Okay, I see your hand too. God bless you. Okay? Let's pray. If you raise your hand, if you made that commitment in your heart, God looks into your heart. He knows exactly where you are. It's not the eloquence of your words. It's your heart attitude. Pray with me. Make this your prayer. God, forgive me. I confess that I'm a sinner. I've gone astray. I need you in my life. I understand that Jesus is the way. I put my faith in Jesus. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he was buried and raised from the dead after three days. I receive your forgiveness. 
based on his death in my place. And I received the new life this morning that he died to bring me. God, make me new. Wash me clean. Set me free from the chains that have bound me, the chains of sin, death, grief, anxiety, fear. Give me a new start, a brand new life this morning. God, I receive all that you have, and I commit myself to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the family. God bless you.